knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. All right, guys, welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, as always, presented by our good friends over at Scentlock. Um, and we are talking Deer 101. We're in episode three of our Deer 101 series, and we're talking about where to hunt. Last episode, we talked about scouting, and now we're going to talk about how to take those uh, the the intel that we gathered when we were scouting and actually implement those into where to hunt. I've got Brian Murphy from Hunt Stand. Brian, how are you, man? Doing great. Doing great, Dylan. And I've got Jared and Josh Stubbs from Elevate Stand Company. Gentlemen, how are you? We're good. Doing good. Now, let me just, we'll get to Brian in a second, but I've got to talk about Elevate for just a second. Um, I met Josh at Total Archery Challenge in Oklahoma, um, and I immediately fell in love with the tree stand design. But what got me even more fired up, they're made right here in the great state of Kansas, all American made. They're a Christian owned company. That might not mean much to you, but it means the world to me. They're a Christian owned company and they stand behind being a Christian owned company. Um, so I'm incredibly excited to have them on the show. I'm incredibly excited to use some of their stands this fall because they've got me fired up about Elevate. Um, Brian, you are with Hunt Stand. Um, Tell us about how you made the journey to hunt stand because you're with QDMA for a long time now, the NDA, uh, but you're with QDMA for a, a long time. How'd you get to hunt stand? Yeah, Dylan, I was uh, fortunate enough to have a, a good long run uh, as the CEO of the Quality Deer Management Association for about 23 years. And I spent my entire career in the outdoor and hunting industry, uh, wildlife biologist by training. So whitetail nuts since birth, I think, uh, you know, got uh, got involved with whitetails as a young child and just got fascinated with them. So pretty much been in the whitetail world uh, for the last 40 plus years. And, you know, after uh, I retired from QDMA in 2020, you know, I, I wanted to do something in, in uh, I, I guess you say quasi-retirement that still connected me with the outdoors and particularly whitetail hunters and landowners and land managers. I mean, that's my, that's my wheelhouse. And uh, got to know the CEO of HuntStand well while working at QDMA. We worked with HuntStand there and uh, just really respected him and really, uh, you know, was in line with his values as a, as a business owner and really wanted to provide the best, you know, hunting app to particularly whitetail hunters. And so it was a, a natural fit for me to join the team and, and hopefully add a little bit of expertise there. And uh, it's been a great two years and loving every minute of it. So having a great time. Now, um, uh, Brian, I'm going to tell you straight up. I'll be honest with you. Last episode, we talked about how um, when scouting, there's a whole bunch of different tools um, and, and all of the different mapping systems are fantastic to use. Um, I use Hunt Stand for different things. I use Onyx for different things. I use Base Map for different things. Go Hunt for different things. I use all of them for different things, different tools as a different resource. Um, today, I'm gonna I'm gonna share my screen, and I'm actually gonna show some stuff just from Google Earth, um, and I'll share why here in a little bit. But um, yeah, so all all mapping systems are fantastic. Uh, all of them serve their their purpose, and all of them um, should be used uh, in your scouting and in your figuring out where to hunt. Jared and Josh, who wants to be the spokesman on how Elevate came to be? Yeah, I can take that one. Um, for as long as I can remember, we've always wanted to to do something or start something in the hunting space. Um, 
we were born and raised in a family that loved to hunt. Our grandfather uh, taught us how to waterfowl hunt. My dad was a big game hunter and would, uh, before we were born, spent quite a bit of time in Alaska and had shot moose and bear and stuff like that. And we grew up, you know, watching uh, basically slideshows that my dad would put on when we had guests over and we'd see all these awesome places um, that he had been, the awesome animals that he had taken. <clears throat> and so then I turned 21, I think, um, before I actually started deer hunting. Um, but I started my career, both of us started our career. Uh, I'm just a little bit older than Jared, so I started there first, but it was Alcoa Aerospace Center. And so I spent the first 14 years of my um, career in aerospace and Jared spent like 20 years in aerospace, <clears throat> but I've, I've always run plants um, and still run a plant today, <clears throat> but that, that's always, you know, I've loved, have loved production and just how things work. And so when we get, got the opportunity to, to start Elevate, um, it was just kind of a no brainer and it was just kind of a, a blank slate on uh, on being able to start the company, and it's just kind of taken off, taken off from there. So, <clears throat> our idea was always to to bring more options to the market, uh, lightweight options. Um, one of the things that really uh, kind of flipped in my brain was, you know, twenty twenty hits and all these tree stand companies that have um, product coming from overseas, they, they just weren't in stores and you could see the right. supply, you could see the supply chain issues. And I, I just thought that that was kind of our cue. It's like, okay, <clears throat> maybe we should really, you know, start thinking about this. And, and then it became a, an option and then we turned it into reality. So. Very cool. Now I want to, uh, start with, broad spectrum where to hunt you have to start with finding property um that's the biggest thing is where am i going to hunt am i going to go public am i going to go private if i'm going public how do i find public ground or if i'm going private how do i obtain access to hunt private ground if i'm going public where do i even know when to hunt how to hunt all of those things play a role in this now i want to start with uh jared and josh because um here in the Midwest, it's a lot harder. In my opinion, I grew up in the South, uh, which we'll get Brian's take on this here in a minute. I grew up in the South and land access was a lot easier to obtain. But here in the Midwest, um, with, without going on a rant, you know, I lose ground every year to some guy in Texas paying three times what it's worth. Um, and so it's just difficult. So gentlemen, how do you go about finding where you're going to hunt in a grand scheme of finding the actual piece of ground. Yeah, I, I can start this. And then, sorry about that. Then Jared can um, fill in. Um, as far as where to hunt, you know, we're from Kansas. Um, so <clears throat> just about anywhere that you can get permission is probably going to be a pretty decent spot. Now it's not, not every spot's going to have 180 inches, um, but the things that I'm looking for is, since Kansas is not known for a ton of trees, especially in South Central, I, I'm looking for cover first. <clears throat> if it's got cover, food, and then, um, you know, water is just an added bonus. But the, that's, yeah. where I'm, that's what I'm looking for when I'm going to ask for permission um, which I personally like asking permission. We, uh, I got my turkey slam this year, did all four birds this year, and we went up to Nebraska and we just, we, we hunted um, the little bit of public that we could find, but it was mainly knocking on doors. You know, we'd see some birds, we'd go get permission, and then we, uh, you know, hunt them the next next day or maybe that afternoon but that's typically what i'm looking for is is food cover 
and, and water if you can find it, obviously in Kansas, especially this year, water's been a rare commodity. Oh Lord. <clears throat> it's been been a bad summer, so you know, I don't want to get off topic because we want to talk yes. about where to hunt. But yep. have you guys um this year's my first year doing it? Have you guys ever done water holes for whitetail? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. On, no, I became so passionate we, about it this year. Yes. Yeah. I've been very passionate about it. Um, we own property, we lease some property and then we're always, you know, trying to find new properties by asking permission, but on most of our really good spots, um, we either have, you know, 150 gallon tubs that we fill up with water or, I mean, I, I put in a pond on one of the spots, the spots that I ended up killing that elk last year. Um, that wouldn't have happened if I didn't, you know, didn't have yeah. water. There. Yeah. And, and to, to speak to what you said earlier, we've, uh, we've lost out on quite a bit of ground as well. Yeah. Um, the land that we grew up hunting, um, places like that, most of that, you know, we ended up losing to, to either out of state or, or outfitters or, or just other people. Right. So it does, it does become difficult. Um, and that's why kind of every year we're always, we always have our eyes out for different spots. Um, just, you know, as we drive around and things like that, looking for different areas that look good, just because you never know when you might lose some of your property. And one thing I think has been lost upon people is the art of how to ask permission. Um, you know, we just, we find their phone number on Onyx and we call them or, or yep. I don't know if hunt stand gives phone numbers, but you know, we, we obtain their phone number somehow and we call them, they have no idea who we are, where we're from. They, they don't know us, but if we walk up to their door, first off, look presentable, don't come from your last kill and your pants are covered in blood and you've got Turkey feathers all over you. And don't, don't walk up to a door like that and knock and ask for permission to hunt, look presentable walk up, introduce yourself, tell them where you're from, tell them what you do for a living, tell them um, a little bit about yourself. Hey, listen, dads, take a cute little kid with you. It helps. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I'm not meaning to be funny, but it shows no, it them. Does. It shows them this guy's a family man. He's not out to party on the land and, and, and whatever. So um, make yourself look presentable. Listen, I've gotten more permission than I ever could have dreamed of just by saying, what can I help you with on your land? Is there, can I come in and mow for you in the summers? Uh, I noticed the bank around your pond never gets, would you like me to take care of the bank of your pond? Um, I can help you bail hay. I can help you, whatever. Um, and, and that speaks volume to those people because you're showing them, I don't want to just take from your land. I want to invest in your land. Um, I want to help you make your ground better. Um, and so I, I just think that people get turned down so much and like, man, nobody lets me hunt. And I'm like, well, first off, all you did was shoot them a text message or message them on Facebook or, or, or whatever. There was no real connection there, but if you show up, you look presentable, you speak kindly and, and, and you, then you get a lot more permission. Um, so I think that's just lost upon us, Brian. Um, how do you go about Listen, I ask you this because I truly believe it is completely different finding ground in the South. Um, because, you know, really where I grew up in Arkansas, you know, the, all they care about is white to, or all they care about is, is waterfowl. And so if you tell them, listen, I'm not waterfowl hunting, I'll never hunt during waterfowl season. I'll never be shooting rifles during waterfowl season. I'm just going to bow hunt in early season. You get all the permission you want. Um, so I really do feel like it is, it's a different ball game. So how do you go about finding ground to hunt um, down south? Well, I don't know that it's altogether different. Um, I'm, I, I live in Georgia, and a lot of Georgia and a lot of the southeast is now uh, owned and managed by a lot of the large timber companies and leased. Um, yes. So, so we, we, we face similar challenges to, to those just about everywhere in the Whitetails range now. And I think you hit on a, a several of the key points. You know, know the landowner's name. Uh, front up in person, like you said, bring a spouse, a child, a dog, uh, you know, all those common sense things definitely are, are musts. Those are first, first steps. The second, and you mentioned it, um, and I'll elaborate on that a little bit, is, is come with an offer in hand of something you can add value or at least be willing to. Even if you don't recognize something immediately that they need help with, just let them know that you're willing to put in some sweat equity 
to help them out. Because that, that goes a long way. The other thing that I found is, is, to, is to be very creative and flexible. And so, you know, in fact, I had a bet with a, a friend of mine a few years ago here in Georgia who was lamenting on the fact that you can't get free by permission access anymore. Those days are gone. And I, I, I took the bet and said, I bet I can. And so he gave me three weeks and I actually got five properties in three weeks uh, just by literally knocking on doors and being flexible. What I mean by flexible is I didn't just come in and say, can I hunt deer on your property all season? You know, would you allow, you know, some hunting, bow hunting, just weekend hunting, just weekday hunting? Can I start and only have a few weekends a year? You know, in other words, just chip off whatever piece, whatever excuse. I had one example. I had a, a, a landowner who, you know, I asked if I could deer hunt. He said, well, no, my, my wife likes to ride horses on the weekend. I said, well, what about during the week? Well, she doesn't like the idea of guns. Well, can I bow hunt during the week? And <laughs> but I had 350 acres of prime bow hunting land all to myself during the week. And, and it wasn't long before I gained their confidence to occasionally rifle hunt the property as well. Had the property for a number of years until I actually moved out of the area. So a lot of that is just being having a, a second and a third and a fourth tier response ready in your head as long as you're willing to, to make those sacrifices, just get your foot in the door. Um, that's the first thing. Um, now, when it comes to finding, you know, land in, in general, you know, I get asked this, you know, I probably had hundreds of questions over my career. And, you know, I like to divide sort of the, the, the land bucket into three, three, three packets. One is the free by permission land we've talked about. And that's just getting, you know, using uh, the hunt stand app or another app, getting landowner information ahead of time and, and fronting up during good hours. Don't come at five o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock at night, you know, try to front up during, you know, what they would be a normal work day for a farmer. Uh, the second group of land is the public land bucket. Uh, and there are some good public lands. Uh, some of them are overhunted, but if you're willing to put in the work and kind of go to the recesses of some of the larger ones, you can find some, some good public land. You gotta be willing to work. And again, that's where maps can, can help you at least know where those areas most distant from public access roads are. And there have been a number of studies, a good one was done in Pennsylvania on public land a few years ago, showed as, as many hunters as there are in Pennsylvania, 80% of hunters stayed within 500 yards of a road. I mean, literally, if you go 500 yards off a public access road, you get past 80% of the hunters. Yeah. So to get up a little earlier, throw your climbing stand or a lock on, or, you know, particularly these light elevate stands, you know, throw one of them on your back and you can go in pretty quickly and be willing to go a little further and let the other hunters drive deer to you. Uh, the other thing is, is there's not all public lands are, are the same. Many states um, have better areas, uh, better managed areas that you can put in for draws. So, you know, always, you know, look at some of those better opportunities. You may not get drawn every year, but go ahead and put your name in the hat for some of those better areas. And so when your number comes up, you can at least hunt some of the better public areas. And the last area is the, you know, what we call the lease or, or pay for play kind of access. And there's a lot of outfits out there, whether it be a timber company in the South or some of the large leasing groups uh, throughout the country or just a private landowner. Oil companies. Oil companies, there's a, a number of ones. And so you have to just determine what your budget is and what the going market rate is, and then do your homework. Uh, don't take the first one that comes along. Uh, there's a lot of variation in what you get for your dollar. And what a lot of hunters do, I think is a big mistake, is they look just at the track that they're considering leasing and, and weigh up the pros and cons, the habitat, and this, that, and the other. And there are some really big mistakes with that approach. First thing to know is what's going on around you. Now you're talking. You know, look out, look, look, I like to look at at least a thousand acre, if not 2000 acre scale, even if the property I'm looking at is 200 acres, I want to, I want to look bigger and see what the area offers for whitetails and how my property that I'm considering fits into that picture and what's lacking on my property that I'm looking at or what's there and what's, you know, what I can add to that to make that property even better. Uh, you know, the, the, the other thing is, is um, you know, any kind of recent activity around you with timber harvest or, or changes in agriculture. I mean, all those kind of changes around you can greatly affect what you're what you're thinking to, uh, of, of, of getting out of that property. And the, and, the, and, the, and the third and very important thing is and you can't always do this, but sometimes you can uh, ask, you know, try to get contact information for the neighbors and see what they're doing. You know, if your goal is to grow 150 inch deer in, you know, in the Midwest, you know, that's probably at least a three, if not a four year old animal. If all your neighbors are kind of doing the same, you probably got a pretty good chance, even on small acreage. However, if yeah. you're surrounded by brown and down crowd, 
you can really battle until the, the cows come home and be very dissatisfied with the outcome. So know what's going on around you. Think 1,000, 2,000 acre scale, not 100, 200 acre scale. Until you get that 100 acres, then make yours the best. And if you can make your 100 acres the best in the neighborhood or fill in the gaps nutritionally or cover-wise or whatever, if you have that ability, and not all lease ground will let you manage the land, but if you have some control, you can augment your property to make yours the best it can possibly be. So those are some of the, the quick hit strategies that I use. Um, I want to I wanna key in on what you said about looking around a property. And that is A, don't don't overlook a small piece of ground. And when I mean small, I mean small, small. Uh, my my in-laws have seven acres here in Kansas. And uh, and I remember when I started dating this, this my my wife, I remember her saying my parents have seven acres. And I'm like, man, I was hoping they had, you know, a thousand, but whatever. And uh, and I remember over like overlooking the seven acres and I, I threw out a trail camera for fun. Like just, well, let's see what let's see what's out here. And I probably had nine shooters um, on that coming through that seven acres and just insane. I mean, insane amount of, of deer. Now, of course, they're not they don't stay on that because in that seven acres right in the middle is the house. So like I can literally see the house from anywhere I'm hunting on seven acres. But around it is all phenomenal habitat and and the deer come into that seven acres and cross that seven acres and and it has produced some incredible hunting over the years now one other thing i want to point out um i'm going to see if i can share my screen here this is going to be kind of my subject property uh that i want to talk about where to hunt with um and and like i said i'm going to use google earth here um this is i don't know if you can see so this quarter section is a quarter section that i have permission to hunt on um yes the southern border of that property is the oklahoma line which sucks because <laughs> oklahoma season rifle season starts two weeks earlier than ours so um i'll be bow hunting and hear rifles going off on the oklahoma side of things which is fine um i got a phone call from a gentleman and i'm gonna paint the picture of this property i got a phone call from this gentleman and he said, I've got a piece of ground, but it's nothing special. If you want to hunt it, you can. And I'm like, okay. So I drive out here and I look at this piece of ground and I'm like, I don't know why you would say it's nothing special um, because I've got a heavy creek that runs here. This is all down here. This is all super thick bedding area. Um, so I've got a, a, a creek with super thick bedding area and a tree line that comes right up into what's always planted. Um, so this is always planted uh, beans or winter wheat or something. Um, and so I said, well, yeah, dude, I'd love to hunt it. Um, and that's another thing. That guy was looking at his quarter section thinking there's nothing on this property that's going to be fantastic for deer hunting. But when you look around it, everything is fantastic about deer hunting. Um, and so this piece of ground here, I put up a trail camera and I had, <laughs> I, I could show pictures all day long, but there's probably two 180 plus deer on this property. Um, phenomenal, phenomenal hunting. So um, this goes to show, and, and, and I'll bring this back up here in a little bit, but this, that piece of property is the prime example of don't just look at the property that you're going to hunt. Um, look at what's around it. Because when I when you pan out on that, it, it becomes phenomenal. Um, before we move on, before we dive into where to hunt on your specific property, I got to give a qu quick thank you to our friends over at Three Rivers Archery. Three Rivers is your one-stop shop for all things traditional archery. They are the largest in the country uh, of in-stock traditional archery equipment. They also, my favorite part about Three Rivers Archery is their expert advice. No matter what, whether you're going to shop with them or not, they are the smartest guys I've ever talked to about traditional archery equipment. I call them and bug them all the time with questions. And they're like, I can hear them in the background, like, it's Dylan, who's going to get it? And, uh, and they're arguing over who has to talk to me. But I bug them all the time. <laughs> They're fantastic to answer all of my questions on arrow tuning or what rest I need. And they know the equipment because they use the equipment. Guys, I would highly recommend you to check out Three Rivers Archery uh, for all of your traditional archery needs. 
Okay, so we've got our property. Uh, whether we have gotten free access to ground, whether we have um, leased ground, or whether we've decided to hunt an area of public ground, we figured out where we're going to hunt. Now, um, again, we, we talked last week with Brian Grossman uh, of the National Deer Association on scouting. So we're going to kind of skip the scouting process um, and and dive into the opening day of season, where am I hunting? Um type situation now of course we're going to mention scouting because our scouting plays a role in where we're going to hunt but uh josh jared um when you found your piece of ground it's the the week before opening day of season where how do you decide where you're going to be sitting that morning go ahead uh so one property that comes to mind um the first year i think one of the first years that i hunted it uh, after we had picked it up, I picked a spot that I saw a lot of um, footprints basically on the on the road. And I picked a spot that I could see the road from, but it was just a heavily trafficked area. Um, yeah. I, I did. I hunted that one, that spot for a year. And then we ended up moving back further into the property, kind of in the middle of the section, uh, found a better spot. But that was... I mean, ultimately, when we first started hunting it and not knowing, you know, where exactly the deer were or things like that, that's where that's where I first hunted. Um, one of the other things that we look at is, you know, in Kansas, like Josh mentioned, sometimes it's finding a tree that you can hunt out of. Bingo. Uh, it's it's not always the easiest. Um, some spots have a lot of trees; other ones don't have very many, and so you're kind of limited to where you can can hunt on those um but then it's also finding that tree that's in a good spot uh with the general wind direction of kansas you know there's sometimes where you may pick a spot and you can only hunt it a couple times a year just due to the to the wind direction that we have each year um so that always plays in plays a pretty big part into it as well um yeah yeah, as for me, the, the first thing I'm going to do is check the wind. Um, <clears throat> we have a lot of preset stands that are pretty good spots, but then obviously owning a tree stand company, we, you know, have a lot of tree stands laying around that we're ready to move if we need to. But the first thing that I'm doing the night before, and then again in the morning is checking the wind, um, checking the approach. If I can't get in, to the spot without getting winded. I, I'm just not going to hunt it. I, I hate, absolutely hate getting winded. Um, and so I might walk, you know, what should be five or a half mile walk in. I might walk a mile or three quarters of a mile just to get in that spot without, you know, getting busted. But that that's what yeah. I'm, you know, looking for. We're, I'm strictly a wind guy as far as hunting. I just, I rarely hunt a spot unless the wind is, is going to be good. Josh is also left-handed and I'm right-handed. So he tries to pick trees where you can only shoot out of as a lefty. And I try and pick the ones where you didn't, you need to be a righty to shoot out of it. So that comes into play sometimes as well. <laughs> yeah, there it is. And I, one time David Blanton, um, said, he said the best stand is the one with the best wind. Yeah. What he means, what what he meant by that, and and listening to the whole conversation, we all have that one tree stand where we're like, this is where it's going to happen, like this is it, and, and we find ourselves hunting that even when we have a bad wind because we're like, well, this is where he's been showing up, this is where it has to happen, but if that stand has a bad wind, all of a sudden that's your worst stand. Yep. So hunt whatever stand you've got the best wind for, even if you know. That dude's going to be showing up right underneath that tree stand right over there. If you've got a bad wind, it doesn't matter. Don't yep. hunt it. Um, now, Brian, um, when you're looking at – let's well, let me just pull this back up. So um, in the scouting, let's talk about um, the, the – well, can you guys see that yet? No. There we go. All right. So in scouting – um, I have found this up here is higher than the rest of the property. 
So I can pretty much see everywhere the deer are coming from. Now I do have three years of history with this property. So that helps. Um, and at first, well, let's just say, so, so we'll tie in what we talked about with Brian, um, last week and that's observation sets. So I did a few observation sets right up here and I have found, um, through that observation your, set, your, your curse is, is really hard to see. So maybe talk like the Northwest or the Southeast or let me see if I can, I think I can drop a point. Okay. Let me see if I can uh here we go. So I have found, can you see my my little arrow yep. now? Yep. So through my observation set, all I saw was deer funneling right out of out of this point and they would come out a little bit and then walk straight this way through here. Now, I don't know how to end this. Save. <laughs> so through my observation set, that's what I saw is deer doing. Um, now, I get done observing. I come down, and I come to this point where I think, man, if I just sit on that point, they're going to be walking by me all day long. I get to that point, and there's really nowhere to put a tree stand. We got to the issue Jared talked about. There's just nowhere to put a tree stand. Um, so I put a ground blind. Well, I kept getting busted by deer. Yeah. Because what's happening is they were actually coming up this tree line all the way this way, and they would walk through here to, and then come out this way. I didn't know that based off my observation set, which going back to what me and Brian talked about before, just because in your initial scouting you think this is where I have to be, you might have to change things. That's okay. So what I found out works perfectly, although all the deer are up here, if I drop down to here – into this belly of this u-shape um then the i can hunt it with a direct south wind and the deer are fine and then i shoot them out here in the field um how far how far is that from, from here the, to here uh, from yeah uh I, 90 yards okay so um, what's happening is during the rut, I'll call in a ton of bucks. Um, I'll call in a – that zoomed way out for some reason. I'll call in a ton of bucks down just down this tree line. During the rut, uh, they'll actually come this way quite a bit and come right into me this way too. Um, so that's what I found. Now, I want to ask you this, Brian. If you were looking at this property and and – you had scouted this property and I'll zoom out so you can see the, the, because the river over here does play a big role in where the deer are coming from and where they're going based off of what I told you scouting wise, what area of this property, where would you be set up to hunt? Well, it's, it's always tough looking at a map like this, particularly when, when you've got the, the, the uh, Intel that you already have, um, you know, I think the key point here is, is your, your ability and willingness to be flexible and move. Uh, a lot of hunters, you know, yes. based on initial sign or initial observation, and they hang one or more stands and they stay committed to those stands, despite sometimes clear evidence to the contrary. They're getting busted, either coming to or while on stand. You know, you have to be willing to put in the work to move your stands and and be flexible. And, and, and you know, often if I find a promising area like you found theirs, I'll set up a couple of stands for a couple of different wind options. <clears throat> so I got to almost regardless of when obviously during the, the rut it's hard to tell what's happening on that parcel between you and the in the main river system there you indicated some of the bucks were moving kind this of is absolutely this is absolutely nothing um they <clears throat> used to run it for oil and now nobody farms it nobody touches it nobody messes with it so i have permission to use this for access but not to hunt it are, are there any subtle topographic features there like drainages and things that you can't see based on Google earth that allow deer to funnel between the main river system and your finger there? Do they have to come up from the South up the main finger of woods that you have? Um, this is all pretty much perfectly flat. Okay. All right. Well, I, I would stay committed probably to, to your, your finger of, of woods then, um, you know, at some point those bucks are going to make that, that journey from the South up to the North and come up that finger you know, as you've already seen them doing and staying, whether in the wood line or, or 
as you indicated, just to the east, uh, just outside the wood line. Uh, you know, again, it's hard to know. I think the key thing there is, is what you said, though. You know, you can use a map like this with our app or any app or Google Earth, but you've got to be willing to put in the, the ground truthing. You know, I, I look at maps like this as, as ways to speed scout, not as absolutes. Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, they, they cut my time down considerably, but I don't, um, unless I'm going in in the dark on a first hunt and have to just hang a stand, then I'll use the maps because that's all I've got to go with. I'll just pick a, you know, a, a spot. But if I have any daylight to my favor, I'll get in ground truth it, you know, and really look at the lay of the land and, and try to pick that tree or that area that makes the most sense based on what I'm seeing. But then obviously, you know, being willing to be flexible. And if it's early in the season, like you indicated, I'll often start a little bit out and work in and not rush right in and bust potentially good spots later in the season. Often it's a little slow in both, both season anyway. So, you know, I often am willing to give up a little bit of time and not press too hard, too fast and kind of work my way in rather than just blunder right in and start throwing up a bunch of stands and hoping for the best. Often it's, it's better to do as you did step back, observe from a distance. If you have visibility across big fields, if you don't in our neck of the woods, you can't do that. <laughs> you don't, you can't sit back and, and look at many fields where I live. It's, it's mostly wooded. So you got to really put your time in on the ground. And if it's early season, bow season in particular, I'll look for unique food sources. Uh, if the whole field is in beans, then obviously you're competing against a lot of food there, but there may be some subtle things within that woodlot that are bringing deer to very specific spots for that, that diversity. And here in the South, you know, it's a lot of pine timber, a lot of hardwoods. You know, I look for early season food sources that are unique, uh, things like, um, you know, early white oaks dropping or, uh, persimmons, muscadines, uh, pokeweed. You know, I look at very specific plants and 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 focus on them early in the bow season. Unless I've got specific intel on a on a buck that I'm after and know what he's hitting. But you know, crab apples, early dropping crab apples in our area are, are dynamite, muscadines. You know, things like that. So in each area of the whitetails range, there's going to be a handful of plants that if hunters will learn them and 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 look for them, they can actually find micro spots within even a woodlot like that that provide a better than average opportunity to get a deer within bow range for, for sure. Yeah. Jared, Josh, what do you take from this? <clears throat> yeah. So I might be just a little bit different and I don't, obviously I have not seen this property. Um, but if you go back to where you dropped your first pin, like where you said those, yeah, right there. I don't know if there's any trees, but I'm going to hump that with a Southwest wind. If there's a good trail that's coming through and they seem to follow that almost every time, I'm going to hunt up at that spot with a southwest wind. Or I'm dropping back south of where your cursor is and I'm going to hunt that with a northwest wind. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's that's personally what, what I would do if, if I was hunting that spot without, you know, without um, seeing it's it. and like. Ground. Yeah, Dylan, yeah, bring your bring your cursor back to the uh, the southwest a little bit, um, right down in in somewhere north of that a little bit, right up in that, that somewhere right in that in that transition through there. Almost all the deer coming from the south up that woodline are going to have to come through that neck eventually, yeah. uh, on your wind direction. But you got a natural pinch point if that uh, earlier field gap that you said was about ninety yards. If that's the case, you've got only about 40 yards across that neck of the woods there. You could probably set up a nice ambush spot if you had the right wind and really, you know, have a chance at any deer moving, you know, from the south or the north out of that, that heavier bedding cover down through there. But somewhere in that pinch point there, you would have, I think, a good chance of intersecting bucks that are on the move. Yep. And I think Brian made a good point is that you don't just rush in there and put the stand at the first tree that you see and busting all the deer out of there early. I'm, I'm very, I would say passive when it comes to early season, just because I, I don't, you know, know what all is out there. And, um, I definitely don't want to screw up that chance at the, that Boone and Crockett buck. Um, you know, cause a lot of times in the summer, yes, they can come in earlier, but when it's still hot in Kansas, Oklahoma, they're coming in, you know, right at the end of shooting light. So you don't want to mess up an opportunity that you would have in November. Now, and it can be, it can be really difficult too. like, like Brian was mentioning, just looking at the map. I mean, if you, if that's your only, 
way of looking before you hunt, you know, yeah, you go off the map, but until you get in there and see what type of trees are in there and how those trees look, I mean, we've set up in spots where we thought it was going to be a really good spot. And that tree just was not in a good location uh, in regards to where the deer were coming out, um, how the deer were behaving when they came out. Yeah. Maybe that was a spot that they automatically look into uh, when they come out of an area. And, and so then, you know, it may look good on paper, but once you get in there, it really isn't. Now, let me make note. The reason that these three boys are on this podcast is because every single one of them have said, I haven't had boots on the ground, but just by looking at this, if you have a guy tell you, and this is, I'm speaking to the beginner, if you have a guy tell you, this is absolutely where you need to hunt right here on right to put a, tr put a tree stand right here. Don't even listen to them because they might be correct, but they also might be way off. And that's how we get stuck in our head. This is where I need to be hunting. So-and-so said, this is, this is where it's going to happen. I know I see all the deer right. over there. I see, I see 20 deer over there every day, but this is where they told me I need to hunt. Um, we have to be willing to say, well, on paper, this is where I thought I should be, but dude, all the deer are right over there. Yep. They're coming out over here. They're going over there. The access over there is better. Um, just to give you an idea, um, this was the first picture I got on the camera that I put out there that the guy said, that's not worth anything. Yeah. yeah so, I'd say it is. I disagree with him. Yeah. Um, so, uh, now, Oh, that's my son, <laughs> uh, eating chocolate. Anyways. Yes. Um, now let me, let me, I want to jump back to what, uh, Jared said earlier, he said on the road, I could see a bunch of, of prints. This right here, this little, you, you would think it's a road. It says it's a road. It's actually just a little tractor path. You're never going to have any vehicles drive down it. And right here in the dirt road, you see thousands of prints. Yeah. And that's where they're crossing the road. So that picture of that buck was taken right here. Um, I just dropped a camera right in there. I put a, put a tree stand right in there. I'm like, well, they're, they're coming right through here, right up this tree line. This is where I'm going to sit. And so my first year, that's where I set. However, the problem is they come from every direction. So you really, I could never find a good wind because they'll come off the river, coming straight across the field, and that's a bad wind. They'll work up this, this, the tractor path. That's a bad wind. They'll work this way. That's a bad wind. They'll work this. And so I had to adjust. So based off what Jared said, I looked at the road first because I could see prints there. Um, set up where I thought would be good. And I saw tons of deer, got tons of deer on camera, got that deer on camera like 12 times in the first year right here. Um, but I just fit, fit, realized I'm going to have to get further into the property to hunt with a better wind. So that's when I set up out here, realized access was difficult to get there. Um, I either come all the way around, which is, you know, from here, that's a three mile walk all the way around. Not, not a three mile a mile and a half. Um, but if I hunted here, I could cut right across the field, sneak through the woods and get in the tree stand right there. And I didn't booger any deer. And I had a phenomenal, a phenomenal sit every time. Um, and so you have to be able to adapt and find the areas to hunt. Now, when you're considering, uh, what area to hunt in, not necessarily what tree yet, when you're considering what area to hunt in, we've talked about wind, and we've talked about access to that area. Is there any other real big um, factors that play a role in where you're going to hunt? As far as when, like, we're looking for new properties? No, like, as far as when you have a property and you're looking at what area of that property to hunt. Uh -huh. Other than wind direction and access, is there really any other big uh, underlying factors that you look at? I'll jump in. I, I look. I look for two things. One, if there's natural topography that pinches deer down naturally, uh, often if you've got a you know completely flat spot, you may not see that. But there may be some subtle habitat features or changes yeah. in habitat that, you know, if 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 trails are evident, and I like to do that scouting in you know February and March when everything's pretty bleak and you can really see the trails well. You know, look where a lot of trails converge to just increase your chances. So try to use topography to your advantage if, if you have some to do that with. The second thing I look for is, is what biologists call ecotones, which hunters just see as where different habitats come together. 
Uh, if you have natural changes in habitat, even if they're pretty small, uh, you may have a, you know, a couple of big blowdowns in the middle of a woodlot where you have some, some natural new vegetation growing, some younger trees. You know, that's, that's a different habitat type than the, the surrounding, uh, you know, mature forest next to it. If you have a field edge with a, a crop or a wood line, I mean, that's a natural edge. I mean, deer are features, uh, critters, creatures of edge. And so where you have multiple different types of edge coming together, that is, again, we call them ecotones. It's just a fancy word where different habitats collide. That's an ideal spot. So if you can have, you can find some topography intersecting with different habitat types, you're in the money. Um, that's, you're going to have deer activity because that's just, you know, it's just like structure in a bass pond. You know, if you build it, they will come. Deer use, use topography. They use habitat edges. And so yep. those things to your advantage. Uh, and you can create them. Uh, a chainsaw. If you, again, if you have the ability to manipulate habitat a little bit, you can do there with a chainsaw, herbicides. Uh, you can actually, I've, pe I've seen people use drift fencing, you know, interior fencing in woodlots to kind of funnel deer. I mean, there's a lot of different, <laughs> you can, you can, you know, do it naturally with just hinge cutting trees and dropping, you know, some trees in strategic areas to kind of block other natural paths and force them through a gap. Uh, so there's a lot of ways you can you can get creative if you have the ability to manage that habitat at all. If not, you have to use what uh, what Mother Nature already has. But but look for subtle clues. Don't look at you know you, you're often having to re read some some very minor changes in topography or habitat to see what you know what you need to see. But if you can find them, you can certainly increase your odds of of success. I got to make yep. note of something. What what Brian said. A lot of like Western guys like make fun of us for. Um, I, most of my listeners know I work for Pope and Young and that's a bunch of Western guys. And they're like, you whitetail hunters, dude, you, you take it. And I'm like, it's a year long chess match. Like what could be better? Like I'm constantly thinking about where the deer going. How can I redirect them? How can I feed them? Like, where do I, how do I get them to where I want them to be? It's a year long chess match. Like I understand the joys of hunting out West. I understand the fun of going out for two weeks and trying to get an elk in that two weeks. And you have no history with the elk before or after, but in that two weeks, you try to find one and, and kill it. I, I understand the the appeal to that, but for whitetail hunters, it's a year long chess match and it's a whole lot of fun. Um, yep. I like to think about, uh, I mentioned this in the last episode, think like a human. Uh, as far as where I'm going to hunt, think like a human. Uh, and people are like, what do you mean? And I just tell them like this. I'm like, man, listen, if, if I just got done with a, a heavy workout, the first thing I want to do is go eat a whole bunch of food because I'm hungry. I need to replenish things. When a deer gets done rutting and they've had a hard rut and they're depleted, they're going to be hitting food because they have to start replenishing their, their body. When it's cold, they're going to be shacked up i mean when it's when it's when it's hot they're going to be going to water same like a human would be like if you go out in kansas right now and try to jump on your trampoline you're going to be begging for a water hose same with a deer if they go out and run around in a field they're going to be begging for water you're going to find them on water so think about things in a human perspective um if i'm if I'm looking for a spouse i'm going to be where a whole bunch of girls are not a whole bunch of dudes so if i know where all my does are come time for rut that's where i'm going to be chasing bucks you just got to think about it like that don't overcomplicate it what do you need as a human and deer need the same thing they need food water and shelter think about it like that and you'll find where the deer are um and and, it, and sometimes we overcomplicate it but that is just how simple it is um before we move on I got to give a shout out to my boys over at Koa Optics. Uh, I started using Koa about six years ago. I was on a hunt with the guys from SNS Archery. I asked them what spotting scope I needed. They pointed me in the Koa direction. I fell in love and I never looked back. Koa, in my opinion, is some of the finest Japanese glass you can buy. Go check them out, Koa Optics. Um, all right, boys, you have found the area in which you're going to hunt. How do you determine um, the right tree? Um, you guys are in the tree stand game. So you got to know how to hang a tree stand, where to hang one. Right. Um, yeah. So you found the area. You're like, all right, this is where all the deer are coming from. How do you find the, the, the right tree to hang a tree stand from? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the majority of the trees out there, we're going to be able to hang our tree stand. Um, but uh, you know, we're not going to find a tree that 
you can't wrap your arms, you know, around because you're not going to be able to get the strap around it if you're if you're being mobile. Um, so we're looking for a tree, you know, anywhere from six inches to about 25 inches in diameter. That's the tree I'm typically looking for. Uh, if I can find a straight tree, great. If I can't, that's fine too. Um, but I'm looking for a tree that's going to offer me some type of cover. I personally like mulberry trees just because they, they're big at the base, but then they start branching out and there is a ton of cover in there. And I'm usually facing my tree stand away from the direction. So I'm going to have that tree in between me and where the deer are coming. I'm also going to not try to put it directly down the path, but I want to be off to the side because obviously deer are going to see movement. <clears throat> Unless you're a superhuman, you're not going to be sitting still all of the time. So you don't want to be directly in line on that trail where there's deer coming. But that's typically what I'm looking for. I'm also looking for, if possible, backdrop to where I'm not, you know, just lit up by the sky, but that I've got other trees behind me. Because um, you can have the perfect tree and you can have the perfect trail and still get picked off every time right. if, if, you know, if you're sticking out there like a sore thumb. Especially if, especially if you don't have any back cover and it's a spot where the deer are coming from all directions. Because as we all know, deer don't always cooperate. And so you may be watching some out in front and then never see that doe back behind you. If you don't have some type of cover to you know, to cover and conceal your movement. Um, on the buck that I killed in 21, I had a doe that was watching me the whole time and I was just waiting. I knew at any second she was going to blow and he was going to be gone. Um, thankfully, she never did and, and I was able to kill him. But, you know, that was a case of she was behind me and I didn't have enough cover on that, on that spot uh, and, and she busted me. Yeah. Brian, um, are you a blind hunter or a, a tree stand hunter? A little bit of both. Um, I use everything that there is from ground blinds to climbers to lock-ons to box stands. I mean, it just depends on the property and the setup. I mean, the last couple of years, I've actually gone old school more and went back to the climber just for the flexibility. Um, I thought I'd gotten too old for it, but uh, but I, I just realized how much I was missing to be that flexible. In fact, the the buck I took last year um, in Kentucky, a, a beautiful buck, um, you know, I, I, I knew the property pretty well and had hunted it before, but knew that this particular area had been logged recently and it was the best habitat on the property, but there were no deer stands in that section. So I went in old school and ground truth it and found some spots and had one of the best hunts of my life and took a beautiful 140-inch eight. Um, you know, so, you know, what I'm looking for on a tree First thing I think about is my access. You know, once I pick an area, a, a general area that I say, this is where I want a tree stand, somewhere in here, I think about how can I get in and get out? Um, then I go to the picking the exact tree and then I start thinking about, you know, obviously prevailing wind direction. And, and then, I, then I think next of, do I plan to hunt this more in the morning or the evening? Which way will the sun be coming up or setting? And I try not to be backlit to where my shadows, my movement is accentuated. I don't like to be front lit either. So I prefer a side, you know, side, uh, you know, uh, sun, sunrise or sunset, if I can get it, can't always do that. Um, the next big thing I always look for is, is backdrop. I mean, if you can get some heavy cover behind you, particularly if it's, you know, a, a nice thick tree that loses its leaves late in the season, a lot of hunters pick trees early in the, in, in the bow season and forget about which ones drop their leaves early or completely. And then they have a bare ass stick, you know, to sit behind the whole season. Uh, so think, think about, you know, not just the type of tree, but kind of the back cover. Do you have any conifers or junipers or cedars or anything behind you that might even give you year round back cover? Those are important if you can get them. Uh, you know, I, I like to get fairly high um, to get me a little more movement. But then I start thinking about shot angles and particularly if I'm up on a side slope and I'm already given some additional uh, elevation down below me, it's gonna make the shot angle pretty, pretty steep. Uh, but somewhere in that 20 to 22 foot range is kind of my preferred normal setup uh, if I've got that ability. Again, sometimes with a lock-on or a ladder, you don't have that flexibility. You're going to be hunting lower to the ground, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. You just got to be a little a little more careful with your with your movement. 
so I just try to take in all those considerations, wind direction, sunrise, sunset, morning and evening stand, uh, ingress and egress, backdrop, you know, all those things should come into play. And then, uh, then of course, you know, when you climb up and you kind of get your first perspective of the tree you picked, be willing to pull the plug if it's not what you think. Uh, most times, yeah. Yep. If you do your, you know, if you do your job right, you'll probably pick more often than not. You'll hang the, the stand in that tree, but every now and then you'll get up there and go, God, this is not it. I got to take down these climbing sticks and I got to re redo it. But if it's not right, it's not right. And so, you know, adjust. And sometimes it's 10 or 15, 20 feet away. You don't, you can find another tree in, in our part of the world, at least uh, a lot of trees to pick from. And uh, so just be willing to keep looking and, until you find that tree that gives you that shot and think about Obviously, if you're a bow hunter, the shot distance to the most likely spots the deer are to move through, and don't don't put it at a distance that you're not comfortable taking if the deer comes. Um, you know, so you know all those things should come into play based on your 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 own skill and and obviously the weapon you're using, bow versus gun. You can obviously sit back a lot further off the area if you're if you're gun hunting. And that is, you know, I talked about this uh, last episode on the scouting episode. So many guys just fully commit and this is where I'm hunting. This is the tree I chose. This is, you know, this is where so-and-so told me would be the best place to hunt. This is, you know, on paper, this is where I need to be hunting. And then they don't make the most of their hunts. And, you know, next week uh, we're doing an episode on hunt prep, how to prepare for a whitetail hunt uh, with the guys from the hunting public. And that's something they do very well. Um, is sitting in a tree stand, they see all the deer moving over there, they'll immediately get up and in the middle of a hunt and, and change trees and change areas and go hunt somewhere else. Um, we have to be able to adjust. Um, we can't just stick to our guns and say, here's the biggest problem. We talked about this in the scouting episode too, is hunting memories of a property. Well, well, last year they were all coming from here. Well, now they're not. Like now you have to move. Um, they're coming from a different direction. They're coming somewhere else, and you're busting them every time with your wind direction. You've got to move. You've got to change. Um, so I just – that's my biggest – my biggest tip is be fluid, um, be able to adjust. Uh, just like Brian said, if it's not the tree, it's not the tree. Adjust it. Um, move on. Try something else. Um, gentlemen, one thing I ask every guest is Fred Bear was big on his field notes. So what's one – when it comes to choosing an area to hunt, when it comes to finding where you're going to hunt, um, what's your biggest tip you've got that I can take and put in my back pocket and make myself a better hunter with? I don't know if it's easy for a, for a first-timer, but as you get more seasoned and you you spend a lot of time in the whitetail woods, there's some spots that feel right when you get there. They just have an innate feeling. And I think there's something in the predator human once you kind of get to a certain stage of experience that you feel things. And so I'll call it a gut feeling, but there's just some places I'll be walking through and I'll, and all the areas are, are kind of somewhat similar, but there'll be just a spot that just feels like the spot. And so I'd say trust after you develop some instinct and some gut, don't, don't, don't second guess that. Often your gut can be right. And I think there's something that we're perceiving that we don't even recognize at times that allows us to, to find that spot or that tree. It just feels like the right, yeah. spot, right tree. And I can't explain how you get there other than a lot of woods time. But when you're, I've been with enough experienced whitetail hunters over my career that often it's funny, often I'll, we'll both scout a similar section of woods and sometimes pick the exact same tree. Uh, yes. Not the other one, even knowing that we were there. And that's, that's a lot of things. We're, we're weighing up topography and tree and backdrop and wind, but also there's just a feeling of that is the spot to be. And so, I, you know, I, again, it's hard to describe how you get there, but once you do, trust it. it you know, I was, uh, I was talking with this kind of same subject with Lee Likoski, uh, who's definitely no stranger to killing big bucks. And he was <laughs> talking about this very thing. And he, he, was, he put it as your entire life, you're subconsciously like remembering how the area looked, what was going on, what it felt like when you killed these deer and you're subconsciously remembering all that. And then when you get to one of those areas, it's like, this is it, this is it uh, because you've been backlogging all of this data of, of successful hunts and fun hunts where you saw a bunch of deer. And then you get to one of those areas and it's like, all of that comes back up and it's like, here it is like, this is it. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, a hundred percent, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The second thing I'll add quickly to that same topic is that once you've committed to something and you, you feel it in your gut that this is the right spot, you'll, you'll hunt more, you know, more attentively, you'll be more focused. You'll yes. stick with your plan longer. You know, you're not up there second guessing as much. I mean, obviously the more time you go without seeing what you're after, you're going to start second guessing a little bit, but you'll find yourself, you know, and I call it the magic rock syndrome. If it makes you, you know, feel like you're going to be luckier, if you have that lucky rabbit's foot or whatever you carry with you that make whatever it takes, you know, stay committed, stay focused, stay attentive. And, and I think you'll, you'll, you'll be more successful just by believing in the outcome. Oh, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Remaining, remaining confident, I think is in, incredibly important. For a One thing my dad always taught me growing up, and this is great for the first time hunter. It's also great if you're teaching a kid how to hunt. My dad always said, you act like there's a deer right around that tree that you can't see. It's at 12 yards. It's at 15 yards. You tell yourself the entire time you're hunting, there's a giant buck right around that bend, right, right over in that corner, right wherever you're hunting. You tell yourself there's one coming right now uh, because it'll force you to be quiet. It'll force you to be still. It'll force you to focus and hone in, and, and you'll just be a better hunter. When you, when you make yourself believe, and when you're elk hunting, I, I have to tell myself after you've hiked 47 miles in three days, I have to tell myself there will be a next elk over this next Ridge. And then I keep going and then there's not one. And then I get mad. But anyways, um, gentlemen, what's your, your biggest tip for us? My, my tip is, uh, just the time that someone spends in the woods and not everybody can spend a ton of time, um, out there but if you have the time and if you want to kill big deer um everybody that i know that consistently kills good or big deer spends a lot of time doing it and it's not you know it's not just every saturday morning they decide oh i'm gonna go hunt today no they're planning through the week um they're making plans they're checking wind they're checking trail cams uh they're spending a lot of time and the other that goes hand in hand with time is hunt even when you don't feel like it. You know, it's Saturday morning, it's four o'clock in the morning or three 30 had a long week. You could sleep in, but you're not going to kill that deer from the couch. And so that's the biggest thing is just, you know, you've got to be in that tree stand. I don't care who you are. You're not going to kill them from your house unless, you know, you've got just deer everywhere out your front door, but uh, the time that you spend is going to, is what's going to make, set you apart from the other guys. I think Josh kind of took what I was going to talk about, but it's a little bit of the same consistency and it's, you know, it's sticking to your plan, sticking to the hunt. Like you talked about, you know, you're say you're on an elk hunt and I think everybody kind of goes into a, a hunt like that expecting success but by day five, day six or seven, that confidence starts to dwindle. But what keeps you in there is the is the consistency. Yeah. Um, we were up in Alaska for a caribou for Josh in 2015, and we flew in on a Friday evening. We didn't see him until the following Thursday. Wow. There were some there were some days where it was looking pretty bleak. It kept raining. Um, but staying consistent, staying after it is what ultimately led to him, you know, being able to kill one. Um, but that Thursday morning, we were not feeling real confident about right. <laughs> at that point. I think we were thinking, man, are we even going to see a caribou, let alone uh, be successful or not? So, yeah, no, I always tell people I used to tell people not to hunt if you have a bad wind. You know, if conditions aren't completely right, just stay home because you'll do more harm than good. Um, and and what I have found is that on those days where conditions aren't good to hunt, spend that day scouting, in-season yep. scouting, do an yep. observation set, pull out way up on a hill, sit up on a silo, find a, a, a hay bale to stand up on, whatever, and just have an observation set that evening. Just pull out completely. You're not going to booger any deer. You're not going to mess up anything. And just watch. And, and you'll find, hey, wait a second, early season, they were all coming from here, but now they've kind of switched. 
now they're all coming from over here a little bit and you can move and throughout the those those mid-season observation sets you'll find yourself being a lot more successful throughout the rest of the year um so that's my biggest tip guys make sure and tune in next week for episode four of the deer 101 series where we got the hunting public guys to talk about how to prepare for a whitetail hunt um Jared, Josh, where can they find Elevate? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook, Elevate Stand Co. Or you can find us on the web, and that's www.elevatestand.co. Absolutely. And, and then you can also, you know, you can reach us, reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, you know, Messenger, and we'll respond to you. Now, guys, I don't want to get too um, preachy here, but um, support American-made companies. Support American-sourced products. And this is where I don't want to get preachy. Christians, support Christian-owned companies. Don't give your money to other companies that you don't know where in the world it goes or how it's used. Support Christian-owned companies, somebody that I can trust um, in supporting. So use use American made products, American source products, support Christian owned companies. Uh, these guys are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, again, I met Josh at a at a at a total archery challenge and just immediately knew these are the type of guys that I like to surround myself with. So guys, go check out Elevate. Go check out Hunt Stand. Brian, where can they find Hunt Stand? Oh, it's real hard. Huntstand.com. There you go. <laughs> there yeah, you go. Yeah, it's it's worth noting too that Hunt Stand is hundred percent. American, uh, North American, we do have one Canadian on team, and that may may not sound unique, but a, a lot of app companies, most of them offshore all their tech. Uh, overseas. Yeah. So a, a yeah. lot portion of the tech that many of the other app companies use is offshore. Ours is 100% U.S. So uh, we are all North American as well. So I'm proud of that. Absolutely. Very good. Guys, thank you for listening. Y'all have a great week. Again, make sure and tune in next week uh, for episode four of the Deer 101 series. As always, I want to share in your success. So if you get lucky this fall, make sure and send me in your photos. I would absolutely love to see them and celebrate your success with you. Thanks for listening. Y'all have a great week. 